Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were joined by NPR's Richard Harris, who is, if you're not an NPR listener, he is NPR's science reporter. He recently published a book called Rigor Mortis about the biomedical science enterprise. And we were so excited to have Richard with us at ASU this week. He did a book signing in Phoenix last night and joined us for a podcast recording this morning. So this was very, very exciting. Richard indirectly got us started in the Future Out Loud podcast, and you'll hear a little bit about that at the beginning. As always, thank you for listening to Future Out Loud. Please tell your friends about the Future Out Loud podcast, and you can tell them where to find it and where to subscribe to it, and you can subscribe to it too if you're not already doing that. You can, of course, find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Google Play, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Hi, Richard. Hi. <laughs> Andrew, this is so exciting. Okay, so, so we're interviewing the interviewer. Yes, <laughs> yes and um, Richard Harris, everybody should know, is responsible for this podcast. Little did he know. Because <laughs> um, Richard, when you were here in April of 2016, or maybe it was March of 2016, you did a podcast workshop for some students, and I was a student at that time and attended your workshop. So... So thank you for getting us into this mess. You so are credit and blame, huh? Credit absolutely, and blame, absolutely. Yes, yes. And you were, uh, you spent some time at ASU while you were writing your book, Rigor Mortis, which I, I mean, you had me at rigor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the key word. The, right. the mortis is the pun part. But right. uh, yes, rigor, this is about scientific rigor or, or problems with scientific rigor, particularly in biomedical research. Okay, so tell us more. What? Well, what, I guess... If we were to inside the actor's studio, this begin at the beginning. Tell us where where did this come to for you? Come to you for from from. from. <laughs> well, I I've been at NPR for thirty years, and uh, starting in early twenty fourteen, I was asked to go back and report about biomedical research, which I hadn't done for a number of years. Uh, okay. Other areas of science, I'd been doing mostly climate change and other environmental areas. Okay. It was a staff uh, reshuffle, and they said, "Oh, would you go back to the biomedicine beat?" I said, "Sure," but. I felt a little out of touch, so the first thing I did was look at the history of biomedicine and, uh, in the last decade or so to see what was going on with that, this, the enterprise in the United States. And I quickly discovered that uh, the enterprise was in trouble. Uh, funding had doubled between 1998 and 2003, which seemed like fabulously good news, mm -hmm. but then after that, the funding basically uh, stopped mm -hmm. growing, and in real dollars, it was shrinking, and it has shrunk by about 20% since then. So what happened during the boom days was the enterprise grew dramatically. The amount of laboratory space to mm -hmm. do this kind of research in universities increased by 50% in a pretty sh in pretty short order as a result of that huge funding boost. Mm -hmm. But uh, and staff grew as well. But then the funding uh, didn't keep up, and so all of a sudden, the enterprise was finding itself in harder and harder straits. In particular, people were uh, 
you know, finding themselves in a, a hyper-competitive environment for funding, for tenure, for all of these things. And I thought this must have some consequences in the output of the scientific enterprise. And so I, uh, after doing a couple of stories uh, on the big picture at NPR, I said, I want to take a year off and I want to write a book about this. And thus was rigor mortis born. And this is it, rigor mortis, how sloppy science, I love the sloppy science, by the way, creates worthless cures, crushes hope, and wastes billions. <laughs> so, lest we judge a book by its cover, what I'm interested in, so what got you into this was not observations of sloppy science, but an observation of this huge funding boom and then decline followed by panic in the industry. Yeah, industry is sort of a funny word because it's mostly university areas, sure. so we have to use that word carefully. Like lowercase industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Enterprise. Is Enterprise, what it is. okay. But that doesn't necessarily you know, say, ah, well, this is sloppy science. It was sloppy policy, maybe. Yeah. But is it sloppy science? Well, here's the thing. The, the, the other, the other uh, factor feeding into this was a growing recognition by scientists themselves that a lot of science that was coming out of university labs could not be reproduced when it was attempted mm -hmm. in other laboratories. And one of the most notable studies on this was published in 2014. A scientist named Glenn Begley, who was head of cancer research at the drug company Amgen, picked up 53 papers. He thought, wow, if any of these papers panned out from, from these academic labs, these are great leads for us to develop new cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. And he tried and tried and tried to reproduce those so that he could move forward with those ideas. And of those 53, he was ultimately only able to reproduce six of them. Okay. That's 11% success rate. The Bayer Drug Company did something similar. They had a 25% success rate when they tried to reproduce these studies. Mm -hmm. So this uh, led to what has been called the reproducibility crisis right. in biomedicine. I don't like the word crisis because I think this has been happening for a long time. Yep. This isn't a, a, a sudden spike of something that, mm -hmm. but the awareness is, is large. And most scientists, when they're surveyed, Nature did a survey in, mm -hmm. in 2016, uh, in, concluded, yes, there is a crisis in, in reproducibility. Uh, and uh, more than half said there's a crisis. Another third said there's uh, somewhat of a crisis. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what a somewhat crisis is. But in a very small percentage, actually said there's, there's nothing to worry about here. So this is this also has a lot of resonance within the world of academic science as well. Okay. So, and as you talked with the people, um, I'll tell you, one of the things that I hear from my lab collaborators is that, well, when we can't get the experiments to work and the experiments to run, a lot of times we'll call up the lab who published it and they say, oh, well, we didn't put in this piece of information about this reagent that we used or whatever the thing is, and we just didn't publish that and, you know, don't tell anybody because, like, that's our trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> so is it is that the issue is that academicians are keeping trade secrets out of their publications is that what's causing the non-reproducibility problem that's or, one element yeah. of it uh, and I'm not sure it's necessarily trade secrets the reality is that science is complicated and and you, most scientists do not write down every single thing they did, like how long they froze something, or what right. temperature, or what pH the buffer was. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are a million little things that, uh, and, and ideally all of those get into your paper, but the reality is you can't say everything. And so, uh, so that, that is certainly a concern, uh, and one reason for reproducibility problems. But there are many other reasons as well, and, and my book actually explores some of the, 
the mistakes that scientists make that are avoidable, that, that they should not be making, and if they were taking more care to design their experiments and to make sure that their ingredients are what they think they are, this is actually a huge problem. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of scientists end up using cell lines that aren't even, like, think they're studying breast cancer, they're actually studying melanoma, or they have... Right or they have antibodies they're using that are supposedly specifically targeted to one particular thing that they're looking for and it mm -hmm. turns out if they looked a little more closely at the antibody they discover that it's not a very specific antibody and it may be giving you false alarms throughout your experiments. Uh, they're using, they're not designing their experiments very well. They may be using very few mice to do an experiment that should have dozens of mice and they don't have the money to do a dozen or two dozen or three dozen mice to do the experiment right. So they say, oh, we'll call it a pilot study and we'll use six mice and cross our fingers and hope that this, that this is representative of what we would have done if we'd done the study correctly. Right. So any of my students who are listening know that one of my favorite approaches to doing science on a shoestring or even without a shoestring budget um, is to say let's do what we can do and we'll call it a pilot and see what we learn <laughs> but that does not extend to therefore this is true right and therefore this is the answer it's you know I think if a pilot I think pilots are really valuable to get a ball rolling to say, ah, this is something that we should continue looking into, climbing a little bit further up the chain of evidence. But, but I think two things I see there is, is one, as you just mentioned, this temptation for people to take a pilot study and then extrapolate from there. So you've got that, that last little bit in the study that mm -hmm. says, therefore, we should ban X, Y, and Z, or therefore, mm -hmm. we should sort of promote X, Y, and Z. Um, because the temptation is so great to forget that it's a pilot and try and sort of make it look as if this is the best study ever. Right, right. The, the second thing I, I see is when those pilot studies are published, mm -hmm. um, it is so easy for, for groups maybe outside the drug delivery uh, companies um, and uh, drug development companies and others to take a study where they think it confirms something that they think is true and then use that as evidence without actually reading the fact that it doesn't have robust evidence in it. Mm -hmm. So then that skews the whole understanding Right. And of course, the coin of the realm in academic biomedicine in particular, but through academia in general, is publishing stuff. So yeah. Yeah. even if you have sort of thin results, you need to publish if you want to keep your career going, if mm -hmm. you want to keep your grants going and so on. And so even if you have, you know, so that's a that's a unfortunately one of the perverse incentives I encounter and yeah. write about in the book is that is that the the whole incentive system is set up poorly to it encourages people to to do the quick and dirty essentially and right. it, and uh, and to publish exciting results and it does, matters less if the results are correct or not you're rewarded right, for right. the excitement well, factor. It's, it's better to get those ten papers out rather than have one really good paper. Certainly in the states, it's different yeah. in in the UK, but they have another problem there where they're looking at effectively the impact factor of the journal. So in the UK, you're expected to get one really high impact factor. Yeah. Um, paper out um, but if the impact factor is skewing things as well so science nature cell right you've got a problem there well, and that's a huge problem in this it, in, right. in, mm -hmm. the, in the US uh, academic enterprise as well it's actually uh, uh, because those pa those papers are flashy that's what deans mm -hmm. look at if it, you know yes. I talked to a scientist at Johns Hopkins who said that we had 400 applications for a single job position and so what do they do they're gonna say well who's published in science nature or cell that's so right. it becomes a filter for them and I also talked to some of the journal editors who are uh, who are not particularly pleased that the that this 
these judgments have been sort of uh, foisted onto them. They're saying, we're just trying to pick interesting stuff that we think, you know, right. flashy papers that we want to put in our journal. We're not saying this is the best science. We're not saying these are great scientists. But once you get into one of those journals. Yeah, so, so presumably sort of flipping that around, if somebody came to you and, and said, why are you promoting XYZ's work? Um, you would say it's because it's interesting. But you wouldn't expect somebody to use that as a measure of the quality of somebody's work just right. because you were giving a story on it. True enough. Yes. So, I was at a symposium. So the there's a group called Cardiovascular Clinical Trialists, and they do uh, three meetings around the world every year. And one of them, which is uh, uh, North America and Western Europe, um, it used to be in Paris. And unfortunately for me, they've moved it to Washington, D.C., because I would rather go to Paris. <laughs> I know at nothing against Washington. It's just, you know, we get to go to Washington a lot because it is our nation's capital. Um, but there was a panel with the editors of New England Journal, Circulation, Journal of American College of Cardiology, Lancet, can't remember if JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, was there. And there was a discussion about this and about reproducibility. And one of the ideas that's been floated in um, you know, clinical medicine publishing is and and has been put forward by one of the scientists who has my most favorite name, Harlan Krumholtz from Yale, and his center is called uh, what is it called? The Yale. It's like the Project for um, Open Data Analysis or something like that, which spells then Yoda, which I also really <laughs> like. Um, but. You know, he said we should be publishing the data, the de-identified mm -hmm. real data, the granular stuff along. And listen, publishing is digital now, so we don't have to think about page pages and right. column, you know, inches mm -hmm. anymore. And there's no excuse for this. And there was a really robust discussion among the journal editors, and they pointed to fields like mathematics, where this is the expectation. And there was a process, a, tr a really robust process of peer review that papers get published you know in a, in a digital format and then really the entire community is invited to poke at them not right, our right. system of published journal peer review right. where you get two or three reviewers if like they're having a conundrum right yeah. and there are there yeah that this is a hot topic I think transparency is certainly what a lot of people push for when we say how do we fix the situation mm -hmm. the, the objections that people raise are, are first of all uh, they uh, particularly in human data they say you can take away you know people's names and social security numbers and dates mm -hmm. of birth and so on but there are actually some fairly clever ways that you can re-identify de-identify data so you have to be careful about that mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it's not as straightforward as just, you know, they'll pull the name off and dump everything course, else in. Yeah. The other thing is that uh, scientists feel very proprietary about their own data. And if they share it, they're concerned that other people will, will derive benefit from it and they're competitive people. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. there, there was a nasty term, data parasites, that cropped yes. up to describe this practice, which is sort of crazy. But, but it is a competitive world. If you ask the patients when they're doing these, you know, involved in these studies, do you want this shared as widely as possible? Of course, it's science. the yeah. pa patients will say, yeah. absolutely, we want we want the best possible use to be made of this, smartest mm -hmm. minds to have it. So so this is this is the tension that's playing right. out. Yeah. It's a little easier to do with laboratory uh, data than sure. it is with human data. Yeah. And there's and there's an effort to do that. There's a, 
uh, Center for Open Science actually is a, 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 a the University of Virginia or affiliated with the uh, uh, some of the folks there are affiliated with the University mm -hmm. of Virginia and it is a fabulous uh, uh, think tank essentially trying to figure out how to create a way for scientists to make their data open and easily available. So, and, the, and so, 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 yeah, there's a big push to do this. Yeah, yeah. So, aren't the National Institutes of Health requiring data sharing these days, or certainly requiring you to put your data in a repository? So it's it's there for, for but others to be able to use. I think you can embargo it for some period. Right. Of right. Time. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we're moving slowly in that direction, but it's yeah. not. It's certainly not totally transparent. Yeah. And and some data, I mean, are massive. If you were well, thinking about, right. you yes. know x-ray crystallography data or something. Yeah. I mean, you can have just vast quantities of data mm -hmm. that, that become un, unmanageable, really. Sure. And uh, and so, you know, conceptually it's great, but you you know, the reality is this can be a tough slog. Well, I've, I've also heard the argument that, you know, yes, people are very protective of their data and say, well, if you weren't in it collecting it, then you are very liable to misinterpret my data. And it raises this idea of the you know, the invisible technician, or it's sort of those those tactile, uh, um, those tacit skills, right? And that tacit knowledge right. that develops, whether it's in a laboratory setting or in a clinical but, setting. But it's also uh, an IP issue. So, I mean, I, I've dealt with this a number of times with, with colleagues and scientists, where they consider their data set to be proprietary for them. It's what they build their career on. And if they're giving it away, it's just like giving away IP for free. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, to them in their minds, it undermines what they're trying to do with their career building. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, and that and I, I'm sympathetic with that. But on the other hand, as taxpayers, we paid for it. That's, right? So that's are exactly, we entitled to it? That, that's right, exactly right. it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we're after you did all of this work and really wrestled and grappled with you know, these issues, and yeah, there's a lot of sides. This is not a coin, this is a very complex <laughs> prism. It's yeah. a dragon. It's a what Dungeons and Dragons die. Yeah, it's a 20-sided die, right? Um, so, you know, what do you think? Well, I think uh, it's easier to describe the problems than it is to uh, describe sure. the right. fixes. I think one thing, transparency, I think, is a, is is a no-brainer. It's a really good mm -hmm. good first step. It's not going to solve all the problems by any means. The NIH has put out some rules that say things like if you're going to be using cell lines, for example, uh, you need to validate them. That should be part and parcel of if you're going to get our money, we expect you to do that. Uh, I'm not sure how well that's enforced, but at least that's now an expectation that is forced, and I think that moves things along. Uh, some of the big companies that produce antibodies are thinking much more carefully about reducing the quantity of antibodies they produce. There's something like half a million antibodies on the market. And they're saying, we're, we're going to actually do, you know, we're going to pull off the ones that don't seem to work very well. We're going, and we're going to focus on quality over quantity to some extent. I mean, the bigger companies do. It's an uneven industry. There's some, there's some companies that, are, that have very poor reputations. But, but that's something that can happen. And, you know, I think part, and all, the other thing that I think people are starting to think about is how do we, train scientists differently because a lot of this starts with scientists not really knowing about, not thinking deeply about how to design a study correctly and what statistical mm -hmm. methods to use and, mm -hmm. and how to avoid some of these common traps that are that are found throughout the biomedical literature. By, by some people's count, about half of what's published is wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that's a kind of scary number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we don't, of course, we don't know which half, which makes it even more, <laughs> right. more complicated. Right, it's right. the other person's half, always. Well, you know, one of the things that we teach, um, at least in the Doctor of Nursing Practice program here at ASU, we spend a lot of time talking about critical appraisal of, 
of the literature, mm -hmm. critical appraisal, the evidence. And when you go through the actual, you know, depending on what type of study it is, you know, the consort criteria or the squires criteria, whatever kind type of criteria, I have yet to find a perfect study that does every single thing that a perfect study that the <laughs> right, standards right, right. right are supposed to be right in fact uh, I tell a story in the book about a scientist at the uh, uh, University of Edinburgh who, mm -hmm. who said there are four basic things that he wants to see in studies and he went and he he, he in animal studies and he surveyed a thousand papers from the top academic institutions in the UK mm -hmm. uh, at, to see how many of these criteria they met things like are you putting, you know, brothers and sisters together in the same mix, or mm -hmm. are you are you making sure you're mixing them together, mixing them up? Mm -hmm. Are you blinding it so that the scientist himself doesn't know mm -hmm. what the answer is supposed to be, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. on? And he had these four criteria. He looked at a thousand studies, and he found only one met hmm. all wow. four criteria. Right. Wow. Right. It's pretty astounding. Were those all academic studies, or were there some of those? those yeah, those were met, those were academic. Yeah. Uh, institutions. Wow. So, so this to me is is part of the problem as well. If you're um, in a company doing this, you've got not only good laboratory practice but you've got protocols which you have to follow yes um, and academics are incredibly resistant to protocols um, and I can understand why because it feels as if your creativity as a scientist is being constrained um, so you've got this it's still a wild west out there of people having the freedom to do whatever they feel like doing with research right and and uh, and the incentives are different also because That's if right. you're in industry you can have, you know, a, a, a spectacular finding that turns out not to be true does you no good at all because you're not you're going to be able That's to right. make money off of it if That's it's a it. false lead. It's Whereas if you're an academic and you have a spectacular finding that turns out not to be true, you can ride that wave for quite yes. a while. Yeah. You yeah. get yeah. your you papers, you get yeah. your tenure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the market is actually pretty powerful here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I have felt over the years in my scientist role that it's really expensive. It's expensive in dollars or whatever your currency is. It's expensive in time. It's expensive in other, you know, resources to do science the right way according to the standards, you know, those four standards that you mentioned that the scientists in Edinburgh were looking for, let alone the full set, mm -hmm. the long list of consort standards for a randomized controlled trial. Um, I, there's just not, there are not money trees growing. That has not been the output of any of these So studies. do so you conclude do that we have too many researchers? For the money that we have available, that's an interesting conclusion. That's yeah. not. It's a I frightening one. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, that is. Uh, there are people who, who who clearly feel that's right. the case. I mean, either you have to dramatically increase the amount of money, or you have to reduce the number of people who are fighting for it. Mm -hmm. But I think I think the answer is to change expectations so that so we should celebrate fewer papers coming out of labs, mm -hmm. but better papers. Yes. Uh, and uh, I think that would make a huge difference, as opposed to saying, uh, you know we're judging your out output by how many papers you publish sure. and, and so on and I think that uh, so I think that I think that realigning the resources is a good thing to do okay. and uh, and I think that that could help but the but the incentives are wrong because that's not going to help you get tenure that's not going to help right. you get more right. grants and so on and so so it's uh, unfortunately what this requires is a change in the in the culture of yeah. of biomedical research and cultural change does happen, we know that, but it doesn't happen quickly and right. it doesn't happen painlessly usually. Well, and I think cultural change, but maybe also 
scientific knowledge development maybe doesn't really happen as quickly as we want to pretend that it's happening. And maybe if we treated studies that weren't, you know, don't meet all of those criteria for the highest quality of evidence, but maybe if we treat them like they are, maybe if we treat them as signals to indicate where we should point our next study rather than the answer the, the, right? the trouble is you've got to work out who the we is there because there um, are multiple yeah. stakeholders and constituencies here mm -hmm. trying to use those data right that's right yes. that's right yeah and uh, and i think that uh i think that intuitively a lot of scientists know that oh, a lot of the stuff that they read in the literature isn't right and so there, there's already people i think the scientists in a field already have that filter applied and they're sort of mm -hmm. discounting what what they read Journalists less so. I mean, we mm. we report on these uh, papers because they're exciting and sure. and uh, and we try even if we try to say you know of course this is a preliminary finding and mm -hmm. so on. Readers will skip over the caveat. So I mean, oh, sure. so uh, so I mean every the, it, that gets back to Andrew's we who's the we because it mm -hmm. is a really a collective effort and you know again the deans who are making tenure decisions mm -hmm. and the funding agencies and so on there uh, there are there are a lot of players here a lot that uh, have that have conflicting interests yeah. absolutely and i i described this in my dissertation in clinical science we clinicians and scientists see this all the time where there are papers published that you look at it and go come on like there's no way but it gets a lot of splash right. in the medical media and people who maybe aren't reading the whole paper, read the headline, maybe read the abstract and say, oh, I'm going to change my practice based on this. And so as a practitioner, I see patients who are, I haven't seen anybody lose life or limb over this, but I've seen people have, you know, unpleasant outcomes. Mm as a result of these kinds of behaviors because of this rush to publish right. and the rush to sensationalize. Right, and that's also the a judgment on the part of the medical practitioner as well of because course. there are obviously these institutions, the, uh, the various academies and boards and so on who review these evidence, uh, these lines of evidence and say, you know, and they make they they issue practice guidelines, and so there's some doctors who say, "I'm not going to wait for the next set of practice guidelines." Exactly. But you can, I mean, there is a mechanism to filter out those sort of kookier ideas, but uh, but not no, people are not obliged to to wait, right? Well, and sometimes, if it's exciting, they don't wait. One of the things that we see is some of the thought quote thought leaders in the field publish some of these ideas and oh well they're a thought leader so right. obviously and there's this trust that goes along right. which then is really I would say trust with system. motivated reasoning if, if somebody yeah. tells you something you like the sound of uh, and you trust them you'll run with it yeah yeah so so one of the things I on a slightly more positive note mm -hmm. that um, we were talking about this last night that I took out of the book was how supportive the scientists you interviewed were um, and we were saying, I expected that to be this sort of backlash from the science community saying, who do you think you are criticizing us? Mm -hmm. But there was this sense that people really saw this as a problem to be resolved. Absolutely. And I, and I got a lot of, I was surprised how open the doors were to nice. talk to me and people really are concerned about this. And I talked to, you know, Nobel laureates, members of the National Academy, I mean, very top uh, ranked scientism I, I, in a whole a whole broad spectrum, but including top people, the thought leaders, as you say, and and this is a deep concern to them, and they were quite happy to talk about it with me. I think they were less like less happy when the book came out after the uh, change <laughs> in administrations, because right. I think they were oh. not expecting 
a the sort of the potential for a slash and burn administration mm -hmm. to be uh, picking up this book and saying, oh, we can get rid of the NIH if they're just producing crap, you know. But my my answer to that is that the the problem is that this is driven by the 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 imbalance in the amount of funding. And so if you say, well, I'm going to cut the funding, all you do is you make these problems worse. Yes. That's right. And, um, well, fortunately, before <laughs> the most recent round of appropriations came out, I don't think anybody on the Appropriations Committee is aware of your book uh, because, um, fortunately, the bills are increasing funding or, you know, they haven't been approved or voted on yet, but they... The talk, all the talk, is about increasing funding to the NIH. Right, and year. I think even I think a, a thoughtful appropriator who reads the book would not say, "Oh, we should slash funding." I think that they right. would recognize that the funding crunch is creating problems that they can alleviate uh, through for, through more funding or through other measures. But the the message of the book is not that science is crap and we should stop funding it. Right. The message of the book is that there are problems that we need to solve and people are starting to think about how to do that and thinking seriously and there are actually there is some forward motion so the title is uh, is grimmer than than the reality my <laughs> my suggested title when we went back and forth with this mm -hmm. the publisher my suggested title on this book was science friction because this oh. is slowing down the process of science it's not stopping mm. the progress yes. but yeah. i thought you know uh, but uh, they thought that this would sell more copies. Than, uh, and they're probably right. That, I think yeah. that's probably right. Isn't there a science friction in Edinburgh? No, like no. A podcast or something? No, it's actually in Australia. So Australia. this oh. goes back to the conversation yeah. we had. Yes, yes. So actually, I appeared on the Science Friction podcast oh, out of okay. Australia a couple yes. of weeks ago. Oh, okay. Yes. It's, uh, but uh, titles are not copyrightable. So right. you, could, you could write a book called Rigor Mortis if you want. Well, maybe I will. <laughs> right. Not this week or next. Yeah. So where are you as a writer, as a journalist, going from here now that you've finished this book? Well, I'm back at NPR again and chugging away. I think I'm much more shy about doing sort of the, the story of the week out of the journals. I have much uh, healthier uh, skepticism about how, you know, how much play to give any particular finding for sure. Mm -hmm. I'm looking into right now uh, some questions about um, the promises of precision medicine, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of the next big thing. And as is inevitably happens, the next big thing always comes along with a bit of hype and, and, and exaggerated expectations. So I'm taking a close look at, at uh, precision medicine right now. Oh, mm -hmm. good. In the form of a book? or in No, the form it's for, of for NPR. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind doing another book one of these days, but, uh, but uh, I, I, should, I should put in a little work at the network before I go back <laughs> and write to the book trail. All right. Well, we're glad that your book trail brought us here, so thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Nice All to right, talk to you. Please come Great. back. All right. Thanks. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.